reading of God's Word. Today we're in Romans chapter 10. We're back in our series on the edge of grace in Romans. And you know it's kind of cool that we left a series on uh, a walking into people's world. And now we're uh, looking at a series of texts in chapters 10 and 11 in Romans that are right along the lines of doing mission, sharing the gospel, even owning the gospel for ourselves. So Paul speaks from Romans 10. And this is what he says to us, starting in verse 5. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Many of you know that... uh, Some friends of mine and I took a trip this past summer to British Columbia, Canada, where we went on our kind of our midlife crisis trip is what I call it, to uh, climb a mountain called Mount Albert that was 8,300 feet uh, foot high mountain from sea level. And sure enough, we climbed from sea level that mountain. And in the process, we experienced and explored things like um, big rock formations and and snow fields and glaciers, and of course, the just steep, steep aspects of mountains. Uh, getting up that mountain was very hard. It was a distinct challenge, but I have to tell you, coming down the mountain was a distinct challenge as well. Um, uh, on the second to last day that we were uh, on the trip and coming down the mountain after we had gone near the, the peak, we followed an old logging trail down through um, uh, the mountain itself. And I thought it would be a breeze uh, to go on this logging trail, finally a real trail uh, that we were w- walking on. But we ran into two distinct challenges. The first was, I've told you in the past, there was this thing called alders, they're trees, all along the trail. It wasn't like the trail was wide open. There were these trees growing up in the middle of it, around it. These are trees that don't grow straight up. They grow sideways, up, down, and you're just kind of moving through these things for a whopping four, five hours total, in this case, on the day we were coming down. It was a huge challenge. But about the fourth hour into walking through the alders, a friend of mine who was right in front of me, we were walking along, we were kind of tired, big 50-pound packs on our back, and he turns he stops and he turns around and looks at me and says, did you just hear that? And I said, uh, no, I didn't hear it. I was probably too worn out to even hear anything at that point. Then he asked our guide who was in front of us, he said, did you hear that? And our guide had stopped and he said, yes, I did. And uh, apparently um, they had heard the growl of a bear. 
In fact, there was bear scat all over the trail as we walked down the mountain. And I could see just another 30, 40 yards away, a clear cave area where it'd be a great place for a bear to hang out. I couldn't see him specifically. And that's the problem. We couldn't see him. We just heard him. Now, at this point, all of us start, it goes right down the line. All 11 of us uh, start saying, uh, there's a bear nearby. And so, of course, being the uh, really bold men and courageous guys we were, we picked up the pace a little bit. And we started walking quickly. And as we were doing this, what we didn't realize is that we had passed the place where we were supposed to turn on the path. And so we kept walking and we walked to the end of this particular trail. And at the end was this big tree that had fallen over. I mean, huge tree, this big around. And it had fallen and there was a cliff at the end of the trail. And we're just staring at the cliff going, uh, there's nowhere to go from here. So what did, our, um, what did our guides do? Well, they actually said, okay, you guys wait here on this tree. And we sat on the tree. We'll go find where we missed the path. And so they took off. And we were sitting there, all, all of us waiting for our two guides and thinking about, wow, there is a bear nearby. We had just heard about 20 or so minutes ago. It was a scary moment. I can't help but wonder if this is not an illustration of what happens to us sometimes when we follow Jesus. That we get off the path that God intended for us. Get off the path in such a way that we feel we're in danger and even feel lost in some ways. Sometimes as religious people, we get lost and go wrong in following God. Well, that's exactly what Paul is talking about today in Romans chapter 10 where he talks about a group of people, the Jews, which he's been talking about since the beginning of chapter 9, who had followed a wrong path in their attempts to follow God and had gone wrong, very wrong, in the process. And that brings us to kind of an important question for us, or several questions today. Where do religious folks go wrong in their pursuit of God, typically? And what is the ultimate way, the right path to following God, and how do we walk in that path? Well, again, Paul's been talking about this issue of following God all throughout the book of Romans. And he's been talking about following the one true God in Christ and staying on the right path, the right way with him. And in the process, he has revealed that there are, as David said, three ways that you can follow God. There's disobedience, obedience, and grace. And the way that he lays out uh, in obedience and disobedience shows up even in our text today, starting in verse 5. Look at what he says here when he talks about this way. Uh, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Now, the other path that we're going to talk about shortly is that of faith. But here, Paul's argument is particularly that the Jews, the the key religious people who had followed Jesus in that day, actually were going the wrong way in their pursuit of God. They chose the way of the law, the way of the law or obedience or disobedience, which are the two paths that show up in the way of the law. And this is how they got off track with God. 
And Paul tells us that, that, that there is a real contrast between the way of the law and the way of faith in the pursuit of righteousness. Now, real quick, definition of righteousness is a right relationship with God, a, a way that we are living in right standing with God uh, by virtue of our lives. So here are the two biblical paths that we use to pursue righteousness, one that is based on the law and the other based on faith. And let's look at the four components of the righteousness based on the law you'll see up on the screen. First, the righteousness based on the law emphasizes what we do for God, how we perform the law of God. That's the righteousness that pursues, uh, that comes through the law, the path, if you will, of the law. The second uh, component of this is benefits are contingent on how we pull off the law. You heard it a little bit in what David read in Deuteronomy 30. is throughout all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And it goes like this. The law says, do this and you will live. Don't do this, you will die. And it's as simple as that. The third way uh, that the law uh, works in our lives and a component of it is that it works from the outside in. Where, if you will, in a more, in the kind of a, uh, a twist on it, looking good is, is more important than being good. That's how the law pushes us. And then the fourth thing or component is that the end goal is obedience that honors God fully. An obedience that honors God fully. Paul talks about how Moses wrote about this use of the law in inspired scripture. And, and Paul even goes on to tell us back in chapter 7 that the law itself is good. It's not flawed. But this is the key. The key is what he says in our text. If you live by this, you shall live by all of them. That's what he means in our text today in, in verse 5. Uh, the person who does the commandment shall live by them means you live by all of them. Everything. In thought, word, and deed. In all of its completion. You cannot pick and choose which law of God in the Ten Commandments, even the Great Commandment, that you can live by. Now, the Jews, however, decided to compartmentalize. And they said, hey, let's choose a few that will master. You know, the don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go, women who do type stuff. And they did this as the way to follow God, the path to follow God. But this is where they went wrong. What they didn't realize is they weren't living up to God's law in, in thought, word, and deed, in every aspect of it, loving the Lord God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. What they didn't realize is the flaw within themselves and how we handle the law within our own hearts. You see, uh, trying to obey the law is a little bit like, if you can use my mountain climbing analogy again, is like climbing the Himalaya mountains. I mean, climbing one mountain would be enough, wouldn't it? Like Mount Everest? But what if you had to go and climb... K2, and climb all the other ones. And you even had to jump from one to the other. Many of us, when we're trying to obey the law in our lives and get ourselves right by getting up, by disciplining ourselves, even by, to obey the law without Christ, is like jumping, trying to jump from uh, 
uh, Mount Everest to K2. You can't do it. It's impossible. Not because the law is flawed, but because we are flawed in our brokenness. This is what Paul is telling us in this text, that the, the way that we often go wrong, just as the Jews are, is we'll start depending on ourselves and our obedience of the law. Now, Paul tells us there is another path to be right with God, the path of righteousness based on faith. Paul talks at length in our text in Romans 3 through 5, the whole chapters, he talks about justification by faith. And this is where you get a righteousness that is not a righteousness that comes from within you or in any way you perform, but is one that comes from outside of us and is applied to us. It is someone else's righteousness that is Christ's righteousness. And there are four components to to the path of faith where righteousness is gained by faith in Christ. And here are the components. First, It's not what we do for God that makes us righteous before him, but what God does for us in Christ, more specifically Christ's obedient life, his punishment of death for the sins of our unrighteousness and his resurrection. Second, the benefits are contingent on how Christ fulfills the law of God for us. Jesus, the sinless lamb, is slain on a cross so you and I can be forgiven once and for all. He said at the end of his time on the cross, it is finished. And he was speaking of the glory of God manifest in our salvation. That's right, your salvation, my salvation, specifically. And the third component of the way of faith, in contrast to the way of the law, is it works from the inside out not the outside in. Heart transformation and the power of the Holy Spirit is a key mark of what comes in justification by faith. Fourth, and this shows up in our text as well, the end goal of justification by faith, that is a righteousness that comes by faith, is eternal life. Living in relationship with God into eternity by trusting in what Christ has accomplished for us, not what we accomplish for Him. Another way to say this is the way of the law says do. The way of faith with a picture for Christ says done. And the key is what do we trust in? With our lives. The righteousness that is by faith is all about trusting in Jesus Christ and his work alone. That he climbed the Himalayas for us. That he jumped from peak to peak and accomplished the law. He was the one who loved the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved his neighbor, you and me, as he loved himself. Jesus is the one who accomplishes this for us. And that's why Paul says in verses 6, Uh, That he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or who will descend, that is, to bring Christ up. You know why he says that? Did you notice the language of who here? Who? Who's going to do this? Who? 
That's the question that all of us here carry around every day. Who's going to do the saving? Who's going to do the saving in my family? Who's going to do the saving in my marriage? Who's going to do the saving of my kids? Who's going to do the saving in my job? Who's going to do the saving of my church? Who's going to do the saving of me? Now, in the ancient Near East, even the Roman times, the gods of that time would have answers. And here's what their answer would be. Well, you're going to be the who. Do these five things and you can be saved. You will somehow, if you do just enough, we'll probably come through in some way for you and help you out. Okay? That's the way the gods of yesteryear would do, would act. But here Paul is saying, no, forget the gods of this world. There is only one God who has sent his son and has actually entered our world in the incarnation, who has bled and died on a cross for our sins and has been resurrected from the dead to overcome death the ultimate and final uh, curse. Only one has done that for us. He's come to us. He's the who that we search out in our search for righteousness, of feeling right about ourselves. Following Jesus is a lot like this. When it comes to the who... You have to ask, what is my role in the Christian life? Following Jesus is a lot like Henry Nouwen says. It's a lot like being a trapeze artist in a circus. You know, you've been to the circus, the two people swinging back and forth. One person is hanging with their legs on one part of the trapeze. The other is swinging with their arms and they're going to let go and fly through the air. Well... Henry Nouwen says, what you don't know about the trapeze artist thing is it is a very uh, deep relationship between the, the flyer and the catcher. And whenever the flyer goes back and forth and the catcher is waiting for them, the flyer at some point has to let go of the actual trapeze and fly through the air. And he says, the key thing you have to know is The flyer should never, ever try and grab the catcher. The catcher has to grab and hold on to the flyer. Jesus is the catcher. And faith is where we let go of all the things that seem so dear to us and so near to us that if we let go of them, it'll be the death of us. When in point of fact, when we let go... There is God in the flesh catching us, rescuing us, holding us in the midst of our sin and our doubt. Now, the next big question that comes up in our text is after what he said in 5 through 8, how do we walk the way of faith? What components are there in faith itself? Well, let's look at verse 8 again here. As it says this, it says, what does it say? That is, it's talking about Deuteronomy 30, this very chapter. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hear that promise at the end? You will be saved. That's the nature of faith is you have a promise waiting for you. But there are components that we have to live out as we pursue faith. 
And the first component of faith comes through the most surprising means in verse 8. It's words. Words. Words that tell us about Christ and who he is and how he is the way, the truth, and the life. To be sure, in our lives, words can do great harm. But God has chosen to speak to us in Scripture with the gospel of Jesus Christ to move us towards him. Yesterday was a demanding day for me. I had to drive early in the morning up to Raleigh, pick up my daughter from NC State University, Outstanding Institution of Learning, bring her home from now that uh, uh, school has ended for her for the spring semester. That included packing up the van. It included uh, taking her and a few of her friends who helped us out, out to lunch. We got in the car, we drove back. Uh, Then, if that wasn't enough, we made a stop in Concord to a soccer tournament that my son was involved with. And by the end of the day, I have to tell you guys, I was worn out. So we get home from the soccer tournament, it's dark. We've got to unload the van because it's got all this stuff in it. And I have to tell you guys, I was unbelievably irritable. I mean, just really. I was like, I just am done. I don't want to move this stuff. And I was just very difficult with my wife and my daughter. Well, this morning I got up and I spent some time with Elizabeth and I was praying with her. And uh, we were praying and talking together. And it was amazing. As we were talking, I said, you know, honey, I'm really, I want you to forgive me for how my attitude last night wasn't great. And um, I I pray you'd forgive me. I, I didn't handle myself well. I wasn't very kind to you. I was very irritable. I was difficult. And uh, just no fun to be around. And you know what she said to me? This is the real, the real gift of forgiveness. And she said, I understand why you were, were where you were. I forgive you. Dean, I love you. I think one of the hardest things we have to believe in this day and age is that we can actually be forgiven. And there's something about hearing somebody say, I forgive you. I love you. That changes us. It was a tender moment for me this morning. I'd like to suggest to you that the God of the universe in Christ has the same word for you. Wherever you are in life right now, with God or without him, there is a Christ who is so committed to you that he bled and died to forgive your sins. For some months now, I've been studying how Jesus interacts with several women in Scripture. In John 8, he, he interacts with a woman who's called an adultery. In, John, in Luke 7, there's another woman who had apparently been an adulterer who washes his feet with her hair. We think it's Mary Magdalene. And then in John 4, which we preached on just a few weeks back, Jesus uh, is interacting with a woman who'd been married five times and was living with a man who wasn't her husband, a serial adulteress. All of these women had left major wakes in their path, had hurt a lot of people. And Jesus asked the woman in John 8, where, where is everyone? Have they condemned you? And the woman says, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. To the woman in Luke chapter 7, he says, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. Do you think the worst you have done in this life, 
the worst you've done in your family, do you think that can be forgiven by a Christ big enough to take on the worst you have to offer? That is the glory of the gospel for you. Jesus wants to forgive you. And that is the thing I think we don't offer in our time. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) When you live in a world that's the way of the law, you never admit you're wrong. And when somebody says, I'm sorry, I really didn't handle that well, you're quiet and you don't offer forgiveness. Because, well, they need to be punished for what they did. But the way of grace is quick to say, I did not handle that well. Forgive me. And the way of grace receives that and says, I forgive you because I have been forgiven by Christ for sins far more heinous, far more broken. I wonder in our time if we forget what it means to both be forgiven first and then to offer that same forgiveness to others. Second mark of real faith shows up in our text today where Paul lays out for us what faith looks like. He says, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and here he's talking about how real faith is a radical thing, to say Jesus is Lord in the first century was a crime. The first century, everybody had to say Caesar was Lord in the Roman Empire. To say Jesus is Lord was to definitely have a one-up on Caesar. To say Jesus and Lord was to trump every other God and king in that time, every other authority, and to say with your mouth so that everybody could hear and know exactly where you stand was radical stuff. Well, guys, it was risky business then, and it's risky business now to say Jesus is Lord. Because then when you say Jesus is Lord, you deny that America is Lord. You deny that pop culture is Lord. You deny that money or financial security is Lord. You deny, oh, and this is one that comes really close to me, that control of your circumstances and life is Lord. Paul is saying, when you confess with your mouth, you are stating a truth that Jesus is king of all over you and especially you. Third mark of faith shows up in our text. It is the unseen belief that is the center of everything that Jesus is alive and well, that you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead by God. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not saying that the cross is not unimportant, nor is he saying that we shouldn't believe in all other We shouldn't believe in other things about Jesus. But what he is saying is that in the resurrection, you kind of have the core thing that makes all the rest of his life official. Makes all the rest of his life real and vindicates him as the Lord of all. The resurrection is the thing that sets Jesus Christ apart from all other gods. Why do I say that? You go to Buddha's tomb, it says... Occupied. You go to Muhammad's tomb. Occupied. You go to Confucius's tomb. 
occupied. You go to Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, where somewhere where Jesus is buried. We don't know exactly where, but all I can say is back then they said one thing, empty, vacant. He is alive. And this is worth banking your entire life on. Because if God can raise someone from the dead, he can raise you. He can raise you in your body when death comes, one day when Jesus returns. He can raise your life in salvation, whatever feels broken in your life right now. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table. God's big enough to raise someone from the dead, the Christ himself. He's able to raise you. Jesus calls us to believe this. And to live like third-day Christians. I think we live like first-day Christians. That is, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes. Right on. Good. And he was resurrected for you. He's alive right now. You can be in relationship with a living God. So, in short, there are three components to faith here that you find. And you might find this in the Westminster Confessions. Very useful stuff. There's truth. You embrace the truth about Christ's death in the gospel, his resurrection in the gospel. There's trust, uh, believing that Jesus was uh, crucified and raised from the dead for you, for you personally. And then there is the rest that comes with that. (laughs) Oh, how much we long for rest in our day. To stop and sit still and think, Jesus bled and died for me. Let me just live with that for a second. Let me just sit with that. Here's an important question for us. Why is faith and these components of faith and truth, trust, and rest so important for us? Well, he said it in our text in multiple places. In verse 10, we will be saved. Saved. Rescued. Pulled out of the fire. The fire that is to come when Jesus comes back. That's what we believe as Christians. Is Jesus will come back and judge the living and the dead one day. And when he saves us, he saves us out of God's wrath fundamentally and from our sin. From the traps of the evil one. He saves us for himself. For eternity. In other words... Heaven is looking ahead. When you have faith in Christ and that truth, trust, and rest in Christ and what he's accomplished, you can have hope that you're going somewhere one day in heaven. Faith, in other words, changes everything about how we do relationship with God. The law is all about how am I performing today? Or the worst case for Pharisee types like me, how are you performing Look at that person. They're not performing well. They're not doing enough. (laughs) But faith changes everything. Faith humbles us and puts us in a place of understanding that we yield to Christ as our Lord and King. What happens when faith takes place? When you believe in Jesus for the first time, Here's what happens. There's a great transaction that takes place. God takes your sin and puts it on Christ. 
And then he takes Christ's righteousness, his holy life that he lived for you and for me, puts it on us as if when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We're both forgiven and we are covered in his righteousness, not our own righteousness. That's the righteousness that comes by faith. And as a result, God looks at us at the end of time when Jesus comes back and he says, come on into heaven. When we die, he looks at us and says, come on into heaven. Come be home with me. Because Christ has covered you once and for all in your life. Jesus has called us to this kind of life. You can get, you cannot rather get in with God through your own works, even as a Christian. But you can get in with God for eternity by resting on the work of Christ alone for your salvation. Now, let me conclude our text with asking what's in verse 11 through 13. Who can walk in the way of faith in Christ? Look at verse 11 with me. I want you to look for the word everyone. (laughs) For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Greek, Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's not talking about every single human being who's ever lived, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who has faith in Jesus, all Jew, Greek, every ethnic group, socioeconomic class, every age and gender, everyone Jesus calls and calls to be redeemed in him. The gospel is those who trust in Christ won't be put to shame. You know what that means? Again, at the end of time, when all of our sin could be exposed, Christ covers us so that we are in with God as his children. So what's this got to do with us? What are the final applications for us today? Well, for those who may be exploring the Christian faith, here's what I'd call you to think about. I'd call you to think about what you should do relative to Christ. What will you do with your sense of guilt in life, your sense of shame? What will you do uh, with your sense of trying so hard to make life work, but it just won't work? Well, I suggest you stop looking to yourself and your own righteousness, self-generated, and look to the righteousness of another in Christ. Call on the name of the world, name of the Lord. Or as uh, another part of Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Stop looking to yourself. Go home, quietly sit alone somewhere and think about who can save me? Who? Who can save my life, my, my, my family? Who can save my world in all of its brokenness? Who? And look to a resurrected Christ who can make dead things live. Second, for believers who are here, which is probably most of us here, I have a question for you. Why does Paul keep bringing up justification in Romans? Why does he, and yes, me, sound like a broken record talking about justification in chapters 1, 3, 4, 5, 8, 9, 10? Why? 
I'll tell you why. It's because we forget. Even in the reading of this book, we easily forget that we are justified once and for all in Christ and not ourselves. Some want to keep in our day pushing, well, we need to hit the sanctification button. Amen. Absolutely. They go together. Justification, sanctification go together. Will you stop trying to replace justification with sanctification? It is the result of justification, not the and. For believers, we have to get back to the question of who are we in Christ? Are we adopted children or are we slaves? Which way are we functioning? You don't have to climb the Himalayas all over again. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And this is not of yourself. Go back to Christ. Go back to the cross. Go revisit I can be forgiven anew today for the sins that have come of my life in recent days and weeks, months, and years. I can go back today. He died for my sin. What you need is new faith. New faith and a new encounter with Christ. Wherever you are today with Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. In conclusion... I started our time today by telling you about the uh, coming down the mountain, coming through the difficult parts of the mountain, where we found a trail and we got off the trail. But while we waited there, we prayed together, we encouraged one another, and our guides came back and found us. And they took us back to, to the trail, and sure enough, the little side trail was a narrow, narrow path you really couldn't see unless you were really paying attention and made total sense why we missed it. But it was the path that led us home. You know what? Jesus today says, I am the way, not you. Trust in him alone and you'll find life anew. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would indeed open our hearts and our eyes to how justification matters so much to us, but even more, Lord, that we would come to you, even if it's for the first time, and taste of your grace. This is a hard doctrine to believe. We want to make it about ourselves. Lord, help us to keep focusing on making it about you. Thank you for your kindness, your gentleness, and lead us to a life that enjoys a righteousness that comes from Christ once and for all. In his life, in his death, in yes, his resurrection. That is our hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.